Thank you. Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord today. I'm Pastor Bruce. Welcome everybody and I hope that afterwards you'll come down to the fellowship hall and we get to visit a little bit down there as well um, just to have a good time. We got some goodies down there and coffee and some punch probably and some uh, things for the kids to do and play with so we're grateful to be here together. Uh, we could still use some lights on up there. There's probably a switch that hasn't been hit yet over there on that section. want to get those up. There we go. Thank you very much. Well anyway, Let's start with the light of Jesus in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the pleasure of coming together to worship you. Lord God, you've given us everything. You've given us life. You've given us land. You've given us community. And especially, Lord God, a community that is centered on Jesus, the Savior, our Savior, Lord. We thank you for your love and that that love, Lord, you've poured into our hearts. And we pray now that as we worship you, that same love that you put in us will pour out to you in glory and to share that love with others. In Jesus' name, we're here for you, Lord. Amen. Good morning, everybody. You know, um, isn't it easy to love when you're so loved by the Lord, right? His, his love just fills us and, and, and pours out onto others. And this morning, as you worship him, hopefully his songs will remind you of all that he's done for us and increase your love for the Lord. Let's all stand. And we'll start with a good old hymn. <clears throat> Stand on the promises that cannot fail when the hell 
crumbles around us, Lord. We are standing sure. And Lord, we are bathed in your love, your lavish love this morning, and we are so grateful that that spills out onto this world. And uh, we're just so happy, Father, that you've called us here this morning because you have something to tell us. You have something to teach us. And Lord, help us to just be open and transform our hearts, Lord, into hearts of love and hearts that are after you, Lord. What a beautiful name it is, the name of 
as we just sang, knows no end. In the Old Testament, Father, we're told that your love, the Hebrew word is hesed, loyal love, faithful love, enduring love, never ceases. And God, you call us to be hesed people, people who live in hesed, who live in your love, who let your love shine through us to the world around us that so desperately, really, needs to know what your love is and what your love does. And that specifically, Lord God, shines the light on Jesus. We thank you, God, that Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. We're thankful, Father, that when he was buried in the grave, he rose and assures us of the effective gift that you've given us in the crucifixion of Christ, that our sins can be laid upon him and that we then are set free and forgiven and declared right. Thank you, Father, for that wonderful gift of grace in Jesus through faith. Thank you, Father, that we are here together to worship, to grow, to learn, to inspire, to encourage, to bless one another with your love. 
And we thank you, Lord, that when Christ comes back, there will be a real chorus of untold numbers of people who know you and love you forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, please be seated. It's, uh, I'm going to do a quick announcement or two here before we share with the bells. A um, couple announcements that we need to highlight. Let's have the kids head down the hallway for Sunday school and Gabe's there for middle and high school. Gabe has something to share. Okay, come on up, Gabe. On Wednesday night, women's small group will be starting a new Bible study this Wednesday, or February, the 7th of February. They'll be meeting after church today in the fireside room, which is one of the first big rooms on the left down that hallway, to determine the study. If you are uh, interested, please stop by and get more information or call Tammy Takano. Uh, the Bible study runs from 6.15 to 8 p.m. on Wednesday nights. Also, the new church directory has been printed. Amy did a good job putting that together, and thank you for contributing to that. Yes, way to go, Amy. Inside, you'll see uh, staff contacts right away, and then also elders and deacons, nominating committee for next year. And next to all the elders and deacons are numbers. Those are your, what we call districts, or if you're in that numbered district, which you can find by looking in the phone book, like I'm number four, I would look here in the front and find out that Francisco is my elder and uh, my deacon is Nancy McCrary. So that's how you go about finding who to contact if you have any needs or ideas or suggestions. So the phone book is super handy that way as well as having numbers and such, stuff like that. Uh, commission night is normally Monday night, the first Monday of every month, but just for experimental sake and to see if we have more participation in that event, we've moved it to this next Sunday after worship at 11.45, and there's five different groups that are meeting during that time of various ministries. You don't, know what, you don't need to know what those are exactly. I'll be there to help guide you. If you have an interest, you'll tell me. I'll tell you where you should probably go. Um, we hope that we'll have more participation that way. You can stay as long as you like and uh, pop in, pop out, pop around, see what people are doing. Uh, we'll also provide some roll-up sandwiches and some gluten-free alternatives for you to munch on because we know you'll be hungry. Uh, and so plan on a light lunch on that day and uh, come in and, and participate as best you can. We'll start in the fireside room. How many people, I just want to get a little bit of a hand because we want to get a general sense of how much food we might want to have on hand. How many people might come and just uh, participate? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, about maybe 20 or so. Okay, that's better than, than uh, before, so we'll look forward to seeing you. And others are always welcome. You don't have to tell me. We'll have plenty of food. Um, elders and deacons districts are going to have dessert after church on February the 11th. And what we want to do there is sit down with our elder and deacon at the table that they're at and, and have some face time. They'll, they want to know who you are more specifically. You'll want to know who they are. And you'll have dessert together. We know it's a busy Sunday, but it won't be a long visit. It's just dessert-oriented. That gives us a chance to bring our favorite desserts and share them with each other. We'll have a dessert potluck, you could say. And I, I'm a fan. I'll be off my diet by then, I am sure. <laughs> right? No. Okay. Well, let's see. And then there's this wonderful Kairos course that's coming up April 22nd. These orange sheets are there in the back on the welcoming table as well as the church's directories. And this is your opportunity to discover God's missional purpose for you, where you are now, where you live, and who you are, your personality, and all that. God made you you and not somebody else. So this is your way of discovering your role in the world for Jesus and your missional calling from God, which we all have, and this is a way to get to know it better. Now, there's limited, limits to 20, 
And uh, it does require some homework and willingness to dig in, but uh, it'll fill up very, very quickly once it gets rolling, I'm assuming. People have come long distances to attend these courses. These are live in person, and we're hoping that you'll jump in first. And so grab one of these orange sheets in the back there if you want to know more, or contact the office and we'll help you out. Any other general announcements? Gabe's certainly got one. Um, well, hello, I'm Gabe, the youth pastor here at the church. Um, so if you guys don't know, most of you don't because you're not involved on the parent emails, which is because most of you guys don't have kids. But those of you who do know, uh, we are planning a youth sledding slash tubing trip to Mount Hood next weekend. Um, so some important details that I just want to make a general announcement because some people are here on for Wednesdays for youth groups, some aren't and stuff like that. But uh, we are actually planning to go next Sunday actually following service. Um, so next Sunday there's the commission meeting after service, but also the youth will be heading out to Mount Hood from here after service on Sunday. So instead of it being next Saturday, we're gonna be loading up the church van after church and heading to the mountain for a, a while. So, um, and also my mom is coming into town. She's coming in from New Mexico. So um, Rachel won't be alone with the baby all day, which would be great. Once <laughs> yeah. uh, she's here, obviously you guys can say hi to her. But for those of you guys that have youth students, middle school and high school, obviously we meet down there Sundays and Wednesdays in the youth group. But um, for next Sunday after church, we're also gonna take a special youth trip to the mountain. Um, in the afternoon next Sunday. So for inner tubing, sledding. Yeah, inner tubing, sledding. Yeah, we're not going to try and find a spot just because it's you know it's going to take too long to try and do that. So I'm just going to make sure we have enough like stuff for all of us and all of the space and try and go to like ski bowl I believe and just try and go there. So yeah. Do they need to bring money or lunch or? Uh, we're going to be getting lunch on the way and then uh, money if they want to buy something there, but I mean really no, no money is really needed besides that. Um, if they do have a sled they would like to be able to take with them and it fits in the van, we can do that. But depending on how many kids we have, uh, we might not be able to fit that stuff, so we'll try and do it. But it's just going to be a fun trip. We're just going to head out there and have a good time. So Awesome. There you go. Well, good. All right, so middle and high schoolers, you're free to head down the hall with Gabe. They're not already down there. And uh, the bells are going to share another gift of music with us.
Thank you. I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. If you haven't been uh, keeping up with us through the, the months, the many months that we've been preaching through Romans, it's all saved in our archive on our website, firstpressoc.org. And if you want to go back and review anything, you're welcome to do that. The title today is Love That Law. And I think you'll see why shortly as we read the, the Word of God together uh, from Romans 13, 8 through 10. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Heavenly Father, we've, we've read your word. We've heard it. We've seen it. Lord God, now we pray that we'll understand it and apply it, that you, Lord God, will be glorified, that your love will be exemplified in our words, and our actions, and our attitudes. And we're so grateful for your grace that when we fall short, you pick us up, you send us back out there to do the thing you've designed and created us to be and do, and that's to share Christ with our actions and the words of the gospel, that the world can receive and believe the good news that your Holy Spirit will put in their hearts. Lord, in advance, we give you thanks for what these words are going to do for us and for the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, the New Year's time, I, you know, we had the ice storm and I had COVID, so several more weeks went by. But I was thinking that what a great sermon to start off with, with a new year. And we're still sort of in that part. How many of us have made the traditional resolutions bit? You know, January run rolls around, the thought occurs to us, maybe I could and then it vanishes pretty quickly. I see none of us did that this time around. It, wise move. Very few actually follow up on those. But I wanted to tell you, uh, Forbes Health did a survey around the country to find out what kind of resolutions people did make. And I just wanted to share with you some of those statistics. Um, I like to know what kind of environment I'm ministering in, and you'll find out that in the messages that I bring, I'm trying to give you some current 10,000-foot uh, elevation views of what kind of country we're in, what kind of people we're around. So here's what the people said. 62% feel pressured to set a New Year's resolution, and women tend to do that more than men. The top priorities are these. 48% said physical fitness. 38% said financial fitness, and women said yes to that more than men did. 36% said mental fitness. 34% said weight loss. 32% said better nutrition, and 36% uh, not only were interested in mental health, but they wanted to improve the mental health that they were having and experiencing at the time. But turning over a new leaf or trying to practice some program is not the same thing as living a new life in Christ. The one is uh, sort of a determination, a duty, a responsibility, an obligation, a commitment that you fulfill. The other, a new life in Christ, comes from inside as the Holy Spirit leads us and the truth that God informs us, and that's what's transforming our lives. And if we want to love others, we can't put out a course on how to love others. 
It's too creative and dynamic and unique to every situation. Sometimes we're going to do something for someone, and sometimes we're not, and for very good reasons. Love is a very complicated administrative part of God's work, but yet it's an enduring part of our lives and our desires to love God and love others with all of that we are. We'd have to use our imaginations, though, to picture a world that's loving God and loving our neighbors 100%. I mean, this side of heaven, is there anybody or any place that loves God completely all the time and loves their neighbor as themselves all the time? It's hard to imagine that. But the Bible says this is what we're supposed to do. And again, thank God for grace. How about you? I have a desire to love my neighbor. How about you? But how many times does that desire to love somebody else as I love myself kind of get slipped to the side? You know, we rationalize, we're busy, I'm the priest on the road to Jerusalem, and I see the, good, the, the Samaritan bloody on the road, and I, well, I've got to get to church. You know what I mean? Sometimes we rationalize, make excuses, try and you know, hide the truth from our own eyes, but we do want to. I don't think that there's an innate dislike or a desire to not love anybody, but we do struggle with it sometimes, and that's something to keep in mind and be honest about. Paul himself admitted and confessed that he didn't love people all the time, and he was one of the greatest apostles, I think, in my own view. Besides John, those two are my favorites. Uh, Peter's more like me. He's got his ups and downs in life. Half of what he does is right, and half of what he does is wrong. Read the Gospels, you'll see. He's a roller coaster. But he's growing, and we're learning, and we're learning to love others and to be loved. And that is so key, and to understand God's love. Romans 7.18 says, I know, Paul says, that nothing good lives in me. He knows he's, he's not as loving as God is. He knows that he's struggling to love others as he loves himself, and he's struggling to love God as much as God loves him. He admits this. He's human. And then he goes on to say, in my sinful nature. He's not a prisoner of it. He can still love, but he acknowledges that there's a nature in him that says, ah, don't bother Love yourself more than others. Love yourself more than God. Or love something or someone more than God. C.S. Lewis said that our spiritual maturity will never be greater than our love for God. I think he's right. Our love for God is what we want to work on and grow in, and that will bear fruit. It will show itself in our love for one another and the world around us. So Paul says, for I have a desire to do what is good. He says, I really want to but I cannot carry it out. And what he says is, I can't carry it out all the time. This is a frustration for Paul, but he wants to. How about you? Do you want to love others as you love yourself? That is so key. The desire to do that comes from Jesus. And here's a good sign. If you desire to love others and you fall short and it bothers you, that's a sign that the Holy Spirit lives in you because you're out of sync with your true identity. If you don't have that true identity in Jesus Christ, to not love somebody else is like, well, let it go. No big deal, perhaps. To be disturbed by a lack of love for God and others in our lives is to say, you know what, that's a really good sign. The Holy Spirit's at work in me. And that should be comforting for us and also challenging for us to repent and to get back to a right life 
loving God and loving others. So first of all, in your outlines, pay off your material debts. Seems like an odd place to start. We're talking about love in these verses. But Paul is in the middle of a segue. He's, this is a transition piece. He's not making the main point to pay off our material debts. But he just talked about how we should honor and respect those in civil authority. We should pay our taxes and pay our revenues as we ought for the Lord's sake, for God's sake, because God knows what's going on. He put them in those places. We want to honor God by supporting those that God has put into those positions with our finances. And like I said last Sunday, sometimes you've got to hold your nose and kind of close your eyes, but this is the right thing to do. Okay, good. Because he was just talking about that topic now in the sort of a transition piece, he says this, so let no debt remain outstanding. He's bridging that previous what he said to what he's doing now with love, and he's going to knit those two things together. Let no debt remain outstanding is written in the imperative. It is, in fact, a command, not a suggestion, not a sort of a principle for life. Don't let material debts remain outstanding. If you got yourself into it, the biblical thing is you're going to get yourself out of it. You're not going to brush it off or lay it on somebody else or escape it or be complacent about it. We take responsibility. We're believers, and we take that accountability seriously. And so if we have material debts, we want to be faithful in our relying on the Lord to provide, to pay off those material debts. Is it okay to borrow? That's not what Paul is saying. He's not saying it's good or bad here, but if you look at the entire biblical model, you can borrow. That's not a sinful thing to do, but if you do, you want to pay it back. If you're a lender, you want to consider someone's financial ability to pay you back. Maybe they're really destitute, and you don't want to make things worse. So you maybe have a 0% loan for your friend or family member or whatever, or maybe it's a grant, and you say, you don't have to pay me back. You have to consider the needs of others the way you would want them to consider yours, too. That's loving your neighbor as you would love yourself, and not just in that material sense. And then we have to be careful that we don't end up in deep trouble I just want to share some statistics. The average, or the American credit card debt right now is a trillion dollars nationwide. It's never been higher than that. That's the high point ever. The average American household credit card debt is $7,000, the average. 43% of card users pay late payment fees with an interest of about averaging 21%. Now, if you pay $7,000 at 21%, you're going to pay an extra, you're going to pay $651 a month in a year, you'll pay it off, but you're paying an extra $821 in interest. See, I'm just, I'm not a financial person. I got all this stuff off of a calculator on my office, so hope the numbers are correct. But the bottom line is, when you borrow, just be, you know, thoughtful, careful, considerate, talk about it, and if you take it on, it's your responsibility then to take care of your business and Pay it off. That's what the Bible would say. Loan sharks will cost you 36% sometimes, and they'll put all kinds of things on the line in collateral. And if that's the case, you'll spend an extra $1,438 in interest, if you can even survive the payments, which would be expensive. Proverbs 22.7 gives us some principles. The, rule, the rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. If you can, stay free. But if you borrow, be sure you're being responsible and thoughtful and pay off your debt.
Okay, Paul didn't go deep into that. I'm not going to go any deeper into that. That's just the surface of the principle of paying off our material debts. If we take them on, we take them off. God expects us to be accountable. Second, then, pay the interest. This is where the segue comes in. Paul's now introducing a new topic, the topic of love, and he's bouncing off this idea of debt and paying off your debt with something a little different. Pay the interest on your debt to love others. In other words, you can't pay off that debt. And we'll wonder why it's a debt in the first place. We'll get to that. Here's here's what he says. Accept the continuing debt to love one another. We're never done. Loving one another is a constant aspect of our lives. We can't pay that off. And that's where Paul is going. We should pay off material debts, but we cannot pay off the debt to love one another. Christian or not, family or not, bug you to death or not, wrote you off and call you names or not, we're here to say, I love you. Maybe we don't feel like we want to do that. Sometimes I don't have warm and fuzzy feelings. Do you? No, but when you do the right thing as a God thing, the best thing that God would want for them, then you are, in fact, loving them. And that's what the Scriptures ask us to do. So how did we get into a debt anyway to love others? Did we borrow love from anybody? Well, no, we didn't borrow love from anybody that we want to love. The debt we owe, we can't even pay off. It's endless. Biblically speaking, it's a free gift, not an obligation. It is a willing desire in my heart to love others because of my knowledge of what Christ has done for me, and more than that, because intellect won't get you there. The power of the Holy Spirit pours love into our hearts, and that's what pours out. So where did that obligation come from? Romans 1, 5, and 6 take you way back to the start of the book of Romans. Paul said, through him and for his namesake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. When we belong to Jesus, we're a new person. Not by intellectual knowledge alone, but there's a transforming work of the Holy Spirit in us that's miraculous. That that kind of love can go through us and to others is a gift from God. So the world didn't give us anything, and we didn't borrow love from anybody. God provided it, and we're simply sharing it. We can't repay Jesus for our salvation, but we live in that debt of love. We cannot pay Jesus for the love and grace of God to us in him because we can't repay the cross. That's done for us. We remain in debt to God's love for us in Jesus Christ, and loving others is like paying interest on that debt that we cannot repay. It's that wonderful love of God poured out that Paul's referring to. And since God's love for us was undeserved, that while the world was ungodly and unsaved and in the dark and opposed to God, while Christ Jesus was crucified, did God have warm fuzzies for all those godless sinners or we've read words like wrath 
God's upset. But what did God do to make it right? He loved us so much. John 3.16 over there. For God so loved the world. Now, the word, word world means the world opposed to God. For God so loved a world that was so opposed to him that he gave his only begotten son. In other words, regardless, his love went to work for our good. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Called out of darkness into his wonderful light. That's love at work, and that's what we want to do. Some might uh, refer to this as like the golden rule. How many of you know the golden rule? You know, well, it's not, Jesus didn't make that up, but he did change what it meant. In different cultures, it meant other things. Like, for instance, some cultures, some philosophers, some teachings said, don't do bad things to others because then they will not do bad things to you. In other words, it's all about me. I don't want to have bad stuff happen to me, so I won't do bad stuff to you, but it's all about me. Others said, well, if you really love and bless others and encourage others, they'll return that favor to you. And again, it's all about me. If I want to feel loved and appreciated and helped, then I'll put it out there to get it back. But it's all about me. Jesus used those same words, but he didn't mean either one of those. What he said was, you want to love your neighbor as yourself regardless you give it away. And it's not like your tank's going to run dry. It's not like there's only so much love and now you're out of gas. The Holy Spirit will fill you and fill you and fill you. And so we give it away, what we've received for free. So then how do we love for love's sake? Well, it's simple. It's sincere, Paul writes. It's sacrificial. And it's sacred. It's all for God. Do good for goodness sake, and that's not a Christmas theme. Do good for goodness sake, because that honors God. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, be imitators of God. Therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, I know in our culture, love is as vague as anything, but what he means is do it ethically, ethical love, the way God would do this. What the Bible tells us is true love. This is the love that we express. Don't take your cues from society. That'll change all the time. Depends upon who you talk to. Depends upon what nation you're living in, what people group you're with, what experiences they've had. The biblical truth is love is, and it'll tell us. This is how we love. This is what God's love is. It's ethics at work. So we want to live like Jesus does and love others. So just a quick question. Do you know that you're loved by God like that? Unconditionally? Thoroughly? Or are you still trying to gain God's favor? Do you feel like God doesn't love you from time to time? That you're the unwanted child? This is not what God's love does. When you're adopted by God into God's family through faith in Jesus Christ, using Paul's language in Romans, it's permanent. And he loves you regardless, even on your worst day. Loves you dearly, constantly, giving you what is your best, even disciplining those he loves 
because it's good for our own good and for God's glory. So we want to do that and keep that in mind, that we are safe in the arms of Jesus and dearly loved by God. So how did the Roman Empire change then over the first 300 years? First 300 years, there was episodic persecution in Africa and Middle East and up in the Asian, uh, Middle Eastern and Asian area, up by Turkey as today, and over into Italy. People were persecuted, hounded. It's estimated that in that 300-year period, maybe a million Christians lost their lives, maybe. Some scholars estimate. It's a long time period, a lot of death, a lot of destruction. It wasn't everywhere all the time, but it was strong enough and severe enough episodically that it would really put the quake in people's spirits, right? You just never know when the hammer's going to fall. But Christians loved Jesus regardless, no matter what. And in that 300-year period, that's a long time, it changed the world in that area. It changed the culture. It changed people's attitudes. They loved people unconditionally. It was the Christian community that went out and rescued babies who were left out and exposed to the elements to die. The father of the house in the Roman society had no qualms about infanticide. If that child was born with any kind of a difficulty, deformity, they wanted a boy, they got a girl, they wanted a girl, they got a boy, you could just leave them out on the bridges or out in the woods. If you really wanted to destroy them, you leave them in the woods where nobody could find them. If you hoped somebody might pick them up, you put them on the bridges. It was the Christian community that went out and found them and brought them in and raised them with the love of Jesus and gave them a home. That impressed people. Also, marriages that time, and we'll get more into that in a couple of weeks when we look into an, another topic that Paul brings up. Marriages at the time were very different. They appreciated fidelity in a marriage, but there's even a tombstone in Rome that says the man was married faithfully to his wife for 40 years, like that's some big accomplishment. That really wasn't their take on marriage, but the Christian community was very different. And the people started to realize your life and your love for one another is, a, is really different and marvelous and attractive. And the church said, yeah, this is Jesus at work. And Rome changed slowly, bit by bit, person by person. But the church found ways to exercise the love of Jesus in that culture at that time in ways that impacted a wider society. And that's one of our responsibilities is to look at the world we're living in, trying to figure out what we can do to show the love of Jesus in ways that make an impact. And that's, that's very varied. It could be through the church. It could be through your own personal life. It could be in your neighborhood. It could be in your own personal family. But what can we do that would make an impact for Jesus in their life that shows them the love of Christ? One of the things that Jenny does is she plays with our grandson from Vancouver a lot, and she just even got a thank you note from our daughter saying, thank you, Mom. You play with him. He has a great time. He loves it. He's, we're so happy we can leave him with you, and we all have 100% confidence that he'll be well taken care of. You know, those are just baby steps, sharing the love of Jesus in ways that sometimes are unrecognizable to the world, but they add up. There's a consistency in all of that. So praise God. So if you want a better America, a more loving America, then I think it just starts with the people who know what love is and what love does. And we can handle that if we realize that one person at a time in the ways that God put us into practice, we can do this. And pray, pray, pray. And take the long view and trust Jesus. 
Thirdly, loving others ethically shows God's love. That's kind of a no-brainer. Of course it does. If we love people ethically, we can love people immorally or even morally, which is morals means what the world thinks is okay, and still be unethical because ethics is what God says is okay. We want to keep God's ethics in our minds. 8C to 9. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, whatever other commandment there may be. And that does not mean Paul doesn't know. He's just shortening it up and making us think. It's a Jewish way of teaching. Are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. For the first 11 chapters in Romans, Paul's been talking about God's love. What God does, his mercy, his grace, how we're saved, how he adopts us, how God acts in our lives and the world around us, the response that God has to sin. All of that 11 chapters of Romans is loaded with theology and information about God and how God loves us and the wrath of God as well and the discipline of God. It's all there, tremendous amounts. It's a great read. It doesn't take long, but read it slow. It's full. It's chock full. It's dense. Someone once said it's the Mount Everest of theology with God. Tremendous words. But now, Paul shifts from chapter 11 to chapter 12, and he's talking about how then we engage what we know about God. What's our response? What do we do in light of what we've learned? And this is what he's doing here in these chapters. And at this point, he's only mentioning the latter part of the Ten Commandments. He's, he's aware that you're supposed to love God, right? He's aware that we want to keep the Sabbath holy and all that stuff. He knows this, but he's focusing on a church that has interpersonal conflicts. The Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians, they're just not getting along really well. And there's some issues bubbling to the surface, and that underlies the entirety of the book of Romans. So when Paul talks about fulfilling the law, he's not saying forget about loving God. He takes that for granted. We've had 11 chapters about God's love and our response. Now he says, he's cutting to the chase, let's look at how your behavior in your church and the divisions among you and the attitudes that you're carrying towards one another and all the turmoil that's being created. Let's keep this in mind. If you love your neighbor as you love yourself, you're fulfilling the law. He's talking about the law to love your neighbor. That's the focus. And so in these words, don't think that we don't have to love God anymore. In fact, to love God first and foremost is the means that we can love others as we love ourselves. It all comes from God. So have you ever struggled or failed to sincerely love your neighbor that way, the way that God does, to fulfill the law? Because when we do succeed in loving others, we'll see a radical message that's really different, especially when we keep consistency in the forefront of what we do and what we say. And if we're Christians, and that means we know Jesus is our Lord and Savior, you have the Holy Spirit in you. None of us needs to pray, oh Lord, help me love others as you do. I would suggest a different way of going about that. 
because you don't have to ask for love. You're already full of love. What I would suggest is say, Lord, help me get out of the way that your love that you've poured into my heart can pour out of me. It's already there. Look at what Paul says in Romans 5. God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. None of us is lacking in love. We just have to maybe get out of the way and let it flow. Think about how the Lord can use us in different places and in different ways. If we love others, then we're automatically filled God's commandments. It's interesting, you know, when there's, there's really only two commandments that dominate all of the ethical ones. There's also ceremonial laws in the Old Testament that aren't applicable now. But the ethical laws, there's just two. Love God, love neighbor. Look at the Ten Commandments. The first four are about loving God. The next six are about loving your neighbor. And in those commandments, Paul says there's examples of love. Now, if we love God and love neighbor, we don't have to worry about the law because we're fulfilling it all the time. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to commit adultery. I'm not going to murder anybody. And Jesus, by the way, takes these deeper. He says if you even hate somebody, you're murdering them in your own mind. That's murder. And if you look lustfully at somebody, you're committing adultery even though you don't physically do this. And so he takes it to the core of our being. And it's fascinating to see what he's doing with this. It's a rich, blessed word for us to engage us and cut us right to the heart. So why does Paul just mention four of the six? Well, I already mentioned, it's a Jewish way of teaching. It's almost like if I said, love your neighbor as, and the congregation would say, yourself. I'm getting you to think and engage. So he mentions four. Can you think of the two that he doesn't? There are two. Honor your father and mother. Do you think Paul doesn't think that's important? He does. And there's one other one. Can you think of it? Well, I don't know if I wrote it in your outline right there, but don't give false testimony. Don't give false testimony. Don't lie in court. They didn't have DNA and fingerprinting and all of that stuff. They relied on witnesses. So he wants the Christian community to be honest and straightforward so that God's justice can prevail fairly and rightly. He doesn't include those. He says whatever other laws there may be. But when we love God and love neighbor, we don't have to remember every little piece. We are loving, and that is doing the law. That's what Paul would say. Now, most Americans, regardless of their religion, still believe that the Ten Commandments are pretty good principles. Are you, are you happy with that? I am. I thought it was pretty good. The only one that Americans don't typically care for is to keep the Sabbath holy. Now, that was less than half. But to ban murder, theft, and lying, 90% of Americans think that's a very good idea. Praise the Lord. At least there's still those core pieces, whether they know it's the Ten Commandments or not. But without God's love poured into our hearts, it's just duty or thought or attitude or aim, but not the internal motivation that people need. So for us, be careful we don't exchange the social values, the mores, the morals that are always changing all the time. The Supreme Court makes rulings on love and all that. Well, that's the world doing the world's thing. What we want to do is what the early Christian community did, speak the truth in love with gentleness and respect, and show people we mean what we say by what we do. That's what Paul would tell us. No matter how antichrist or immoral a culture is, 
our loyalty, and our love is to Jesus. Think about the culture that the early Christians were in. When they were uh, slaves in Egypt for 400 years, it was polytheistic, and people thought that the Pharaoh was a god incarnate among them. And then think about the Christian community in Rome. Again, polytheism, many gods. They were even accused of being atheists because they didn't believe in many gods, just one. But they clung to the truth. They clung to the faith. They showed people by example their authenticity and their love for Jesus. And over time, things changed. And that's what we want to do. So if we love our neighbor as ourselves, do you want to eat? So do they. Do you want meaning, purpose, and hope in your life? So do they. Do you want a good community to enjoy company with and feel safe in? Well, so do they. A Christian life wants what God's best is for ourselves and for others. Then lastly, because this is important, and I think sometimes we can shoot too far over on sacrificial love to the point that we're actually doing more damage than good, I want to close with this. Loving others includes good boundaries. Loving others includes good boundaries. Proper boundaries. Helpful boundaries. Verse 10, Paul does this when he says this. Love does no harm to its neighbor. That's what his teacher taught him. Gamaliel. He was taught by Gamaliel in their equivalent of seminary these same words, and he's quoting his professor, so to speak. Love does no harm to its neighbor, therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. He says, practice good boundaries. Our focus should be just on the neighbor that the Holy Spirit puts in our path. How many people live in this world? And yet we're told to love our neighbor, and who's our neighbor? Well, it's everybody. Oh, my goodness, how am I going to love everybody all at the same time? It's impossible, let alone my neighborhood, let alone my street. The point is, if you look at the scriptural messages, we act on those or with those who God puts in our path. God brings them to us. He expects us then to respond to them in ways that show the love of Jesus for them. Galatians 6, 9, Let us not become weary in doing good, because we can, for that the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. No matter what the world looks like, don't give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, as we have opportunity, catch those words, underline them, circle them, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. You see the circumstances? Opportunistic opportunities, right? Especially to those who belong to the family of believers. We really need to care for each other first and foremost. And then we need to show others that we care and love them too. So what are some final words? Well, just some practical advice um, coming from many years of ministry and just looking at the scriptures. Don't spread yourself too thin. You know, you can support a million different mission agencies and everybody gets a dime and the dime really does no good. And not only that, but we could be stretched so thin that we don't have any other resources to help anybody with. We're tapped out. And that doesn't help the opportunities that the Holy Spirit puts in front of us, the people around us. We want to have the reserves and the abilities to help. We want to be open-handed, but we don't want to exceed what God has provided us beyond our means. 
We want to pay material debts. Yes, we can't tell the bank we helped our neighbor and now we're stuck. Like I got one uh, years ago, a man called me up and said, I had my cats uh, operated on by the veterinarian. Now I can't pay my rent. Can you help me? And I said, uh, you're actually asking me to pay for your cat's operation, not your rent. No, I'm not. I'm asking you to help me with my rent. No, no, no. You took your rent money and used it for your cats, and now you're asking me to backfill, which is basically paying for your cats. The one, the roof over your head, was more important. Sometimes you have to spend time talking with people and helping people prioritize and realize what it is that they're thinking and what it is that they're actually doing and help them navigate better in life. Helping others is more than necessary will put us in the hurt locker, and then we'll end up crying for help ourselves. Live within the boundaries. Ideally, there should be expectations and accountability. When you look at the biblical accounts, the, the cities weren't that big. Oregon City now has over 40-some thousand, I think. That's a lot of people. And at the seminar yesterday, there's many homeless that we heard about that are in our communities as well. And my heart goes out to them. There's many of them, and there are many ministries for them, both civil and uh, spiritual, and that's good. The key piece, though, is that we can actually maybe not be helping somebody when we want to be helping them. And again, it's because maybe we've lost sight of some boundaries, and I want to give you some reasons why. I want accountability. Biblical stories and accounts had accountability. I want to know what you're going to do with this. I want to know who you are. I want, to, I want to get to know you. People have all kinds of ideas, make all kinds of promises. Maybe they're authentic, and if the Spirit puts it on your heart, do it. But otherwise, I think accountability is one of the missing pieces. They should be accountable for the help that they receive to do something good with it. And that's a really important point because where we live especially where we live. I want to share some things with you that maybe you're aware of and maybe you're not. When we help somebody materially, like financially, or we relieve them of expenses that they otherwise would have to pay for, we might be helping them buy drugs and alcohol and whatever else they're, they're wanting to do. Gamble, I don't know what it would be. We have to then have accountability to know where this is going and what they're doing with this to the extent that we can. And so I want to share why that's so important here. Number one, Portland in 2020, not Portland, Oregon itself was number one in the nation for opioid and meth use. Number one, no other state in the country has more opiate and meth use than Oregon. 2020. 2023, Coin 6 News. Oregon has the worst addiction problem in the United States. Not for every category, but overall, the worst. We're third in teen drug use. We're second in adult drug use. Almost 20% of youth 12 and up have used illegal drugs in the prior month. That's one in five. 12% have addictions to alcohol. And from 2018 to 2022, drug deaths among teens aged 15 to 19 soared 550%. It's a lot. It's the fastest growing rate. And that's why Narcan was part of our discussion down there as well. And we do have Narcan on premises, if necessary. Sometimes, you know, we, we think we're helping. Sometimes I just don't want to feel guilty. Have you ever wanted to help somebody because you didn't want to feel guilty? 
You know, you look them in the eye and it's like, I can't not help them. They're looking at me. Well, think about it. Are you really helping them? Do you know who they are? It'd be better to have a dialogue with the things and the people that God puts right in front of you. Remember, it's opportunity. Think, is this an opportunity or is this a manipulation? Can this person, with my generosity and my kindness and my love for them, actually turn this around for their own detriment? Is this really going to help them? I think we need to seriously think about what we can do and then what we shouldn't do and be just a little bit more careful, but always be open-handed. Pray, let the Holy Spirit guide you, and if you have the opportunity, seek accountability. That's the one missing piece that we sometimes forget. And in the, the state that we're in, the, especially Portland probably has the higher averages than the rest of the state, I would imagine, we need to be a wise, wise as serpents, but as innocent as doves. To love others sometimes is not to give them something that they think they want, but to give them what they need. Didn't Jesus do that all the time? Nicodemus came to Jesus in the dark of the night in John chapter 3, and he said, Who are you? He wanted to know. He had a need to know who Jesus was. Jesus did not answer his question. Instead, Jesus gave him what he needed. You must be born again. To which he probably said, huh? Doesn't say that in the Greek, but I imagine he went, what? And then he says, how can I crawl back inside my mother's womb? You've got to be joking. And he knew that's impossible. He just didn't know what Jesus was talking about. He didn't get the answer he sought. Jesus gave him what he needed. And I think that's how we can take that next step up. And rather than get rid of guilt and how I, I probably should have helped them, be more thoughtful in planning and realize boundaries are important. Opportunities, watch for them. Pray for them. Be alert to them. Live open-handed lives. Don't be tight-fisted. I'm not going to help anybody anymore. The pastor says I shouldn't. That's not it. <laughs> we want to help. We want to love. But think about whether or not this is God's best for them. That's real love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, what a challenge it is. I think it's easier for us to imagine that we love you fully because that's everywhere all at once, and you're the one that gives us so much, and it's not a one-way street, it seems. You bless us. You pour out your love into our hearts. Lord God, it is so much easier and more relevant in our lives, I think, in terms of safety and security and authenticity and reliability, Lord, to love you back. You're lovable. And it's your love poured into our hearts that draws us to you. And thank you so much for that enduring love that lasts forever. And thank you that when we fall short, your grace covers a multitude of sins, that we are who we are in Christ. We are your children, and we are grateful. Lord, the bigger challenge I think we face, even, well, maybe not bigger, but certainly maybe more prevalent, is how do we love our neighbor properly? How do we love them in a way that's for the best, your best? Not what they think is best, but, Lord, your best for them. That would be the same thing as your best for us. So, God, give us wisdom. Help us not to run around with false guilt. Help us to invest 
in other people's lives in a way that we can increase the accountability, the encouragement. And Lord God, thank you for uh, the various ministries and other aspects, Lord, that are ministering to those out in the streets. We're thankful that they can find resources, grateful for the food that they can eat, thankful, Father, that we can have a role in that here through the church with hope and Narcan if necessary. Lord, it's all there for our neighbors, and we thank you, God, that as individuals, if we have an opportunity and you provide the resources, help us to be open-handed, led by your Holy Spirit, unafraid, but with wisdom for you and for their sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. This closing song we've used a lot at the beginning of worship, but um, we wanted to sing it at the end of worship today because it's, it's, it's a call to rise and go and love like Jesus loves. And so uh, it's been around a while. Here we go.
Let us rise. Would you join me in the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And may the love of the Father and the sacrificial grace of Jesus and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. Love outpoured into the world around us and to one another forever and ever. And all of God's people can say, Amen. Come on down to the fellowship hall. Enjoy each other's company. Grab the goodies. They're there for you to enjoy.